okay, thank you all for coming over the last ah couple years i've talked to numerous local groups most of them non-academic about the difficult relations that now exist between the united states and the societies of the arab world can everybody hear me yes okay and one question that keeps coming up is some version of the question why do they hate us by which the questioner usually means why is there so much hostility toward the united states coming from the arab world now one can cast doubt on the premise of the question is hate really the right word to capture the range of emotions that arabs feel toward the united states isn't the situation more complex than that and who exactly do we mean by they and us can the enormously diverse societies of the united states and the arab world really be so neatly defined in this way still there is an undeniable reality that underlies this question one that needs to be recognized discussed and hopefully understood over the last few decades and especially over the last couple years it's become painfully clear that many people in the arab world do harbor extremely negative feelings about the united states if not about the american people themselves and certainly about the u.s. government and its policies while it's difficult to quantify these sentiments it's easy enough to see that they exist they're detectable in numerous public opinion polls that have recently been taken in the arab world in the proliferation of outrageous conspiracy theories about the united states and in public expressions of support for acts of terrorism against the united states and its allies now typically these expressions of support for terrorism represent a minority position in the arab world but a sufficiently large majority a minority to be a subject of deep concern so we return to the original question why has this state of affairs arisen one answer to this question actually a fairly old one but one that has become quite popular over the last couple years is the famous clash of civilizations thesis this concept is most closely associated with the political scientist Samuel Huntington but it's also been put forward by the historian Bernard Lewis in fact Bernard Lewis is the one who started it according to this theory Arab and Muslim hostility to the United States is part of a larger feeling of antipathy toward Western civilization as a whole and this antipathy comes not from any political grievance over Western policies but from a deep-seated and not entirely rational rejection of everything the West stands for secularism liberalism relativism modernity sexual permissiveness and so on in other words it's not what we do it's who we are that causes so much outrage and since the rejection of the West is basically existential the argument goes there's little that Western nations can do to appease Arab or Muslim wrath Bernard Lewis makes the further point that this rejection of the West is rooted in a sense of humiliation and wounded pride that Arabs and Muslims feel stemming from the fact that their once great civilization the formidable Muslim Empire of 1200 years ago or so has been overtaken by its ancient rival Christendom 
and now finds itself in a decidedly inferior position vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Europe and the United States, which for the purposes of this argument is an extension of, uh, of, of Europe. Uh, so that's the clash of civilizations theory. Now, there's a grain of truth to this argument, but not much more than that. Uh, one problem with the clash of civilizations theory is that current Arab hostility is primarily directed not against Western Europe, uh, which if anything is more secular and permissive uh, than the United States, but against the United States. In fact, on some issues, uh, like the Palestine question and the recent war in Iraq, uh, the clash of opinions we're witnessing is not the Arab world versus Europe and the United States, but rather the Arab world and Europe versus the United States. Um, now, it's true that recently France has not helped its position in the Muslim world by its attempt to, uh, to ban the headscarf, but uh, that's not the kind of issue that really generates the, the main antagonism as far as, as far as I can tell. It really has more to do with questions of war and peace, uh, and, and there you, you see more alignment between uh, French public opinion and, uh, and, and opinion in the Arab world. Uh, a second problem is that if you look closely at what Arabs are objecting to, about the United States, you'll find that political critiques, again, uh, Palestine and Iraq are high on the list, are much more numerous and intense than cultural critiques. Uh, to be sure, there are aspects of American society and culture that many Arabs find problematic. Uh, for example, Arabs tend to place a higher value on group cohesiveness and family obligation than Americans do, uh, and to look askance at uh, Americans' emphasis on uh, individualism. Uh, there are also differences over, uh, over gender. Uh, sometimes some controversies erupt uh, uh, following the marriage of an American woman to a Saudi man. Uh, the, the, they'll get divorced and then the Saudi man will essentially abduct the children and go back to Saudi Arabia. And there'll be a, a minor diplomatic flap between the U.S. and, uh, and Saudi Arabia. But the, again, this, is, this strikes me as more of a peripheral uh, dispute than some of the more uh, uh, antagonistic uh, uh, disputes that we've seen in, the, uh, in recent uh, years and months. Um, polls recently taken in the Arab world reveal that the harshest uh, Arab assessments are reserved for America's foreign policies, not its perceived values and cultural characteristics, uh, for which many Arabs continue to express admiration. According to a recent survey conducted by the Pew Research Center for the People and the Press, quote, American ideas about democracy, unquote, enjoy a higher favorable rating in Lebanon than they do in Britain, France, Germany, or Spain, while, quote, American ways of doing business, unquote, are nearly twice as popular among the Jordanians as they are among the French. Now, I don't want to deny that there is an important legacy of anti-Western sentiment in the Arab world, and that this legacy is closely related to the more particularly anti-American sentiment we see today. But I would suggest that we can better understand this legacy if we consider the interactions between the Arab world and the West, not over the last 1,200 years, but over the last century or so. The societies of the Middle East are in the midst of a profound crisis, but a crisis with modern origins. The peoples of that region feel that they have been victimized by the West and denied the benefits of the world now being created 
in the West's image. Such perceptions are often exaggerated or simplistic, but they are grounded in historical reality. And over the last half century, as Americans have inherited the mantle of global power, these antagonisms have naturally been focused on the United States. So that's what I'm going to be uh, focusing on uh, this evening, the evolving relations between the United States and the Arab world over the last several decades. Uh, we do indeed find ourselves at a low point in U.S.-Arab relations, by which, by which I mean not so much uh, relations between the United States government and the various regimes of the Arab world, uh, but rather uh, relations uh, between um, the United States and the broad current of Arab public opinion. Uh, those relations are as bad as they've been in my living memory. You'd probably have to go back to the immediate aftermath of the Six-Day War of 1967 uh, to find a moment of comparable bitterness. Uh, one of the benefits of looking at this subject historically, however, is that you can see that it hasn't always been this way. In previous decades, Arabs and Americans have gotten along quite a bit better than they do now. So there's nothing inevitable or uh, essential about the mutual antagonism we see today. Uh, up until the middle of the 20th century, the United States had a relatively benign image in the Arab world. Unlike most uh, other major Western powers, Britain and France, for example, the United States had no imperial ambitions in the Middle East. U.S. interests were almost entirely missionary philanthropic, educational, and commercial. Uh, the main concern of the U.S. government was making sure that the individual Americans and American institutions uh, engaging in such activities were not obstructed or endangered uh, and that they received reasonable compensation for their efforts. Apart from a brief flurry of Wilsonian activity in the aftermath of World War I, the United States had not concerned itself with the political character uh, or geopolitical orientation of the countries of the Middle East. And Arabs were generally appreciative of Washington's political aloofness and grateful for the educational and uh, philanthropic services that Americans provided. All this started to change when the United States entered World War II in late 1941. Now that it was in the war, the U.S. government could no longer ignore the geopolitical orientation of Middle Eastern countries. Uh, it was essential for the war effort uh, that the Middle East not fall under the control of Nazi Germany and its allies. Should that happen, uh, Germany and Japan might be able to link up with each other along Asia's southern rim making it impossible for the United States uh, to send war supplies to Russia, its wartime ally. And in fact, there was a major supply route uh, through Iran, from the Persian Gulf up uh, through Iran into southern, uh, the southern part of the Soviet Union uh, that uh, was vital to keep uh, Russia fighting in the war. So uh, the United States and its allies were absolutely determined to keep Iran and the surrounding area out of Axis hands. Um, also, should the Axis powers take over the Middle East, they would, uh, of course, gain control of the region's uh, enormous oil reserves. For the first time, then, it became essential to the overall security of the United States that the countries of the Middle East 
be under the control of friendly forces, whether indigenous or European. After the war ended in 1945, the United States continued to be concerned that the Middle East might fall into hostile hands. Only now, of course, the main hostile power in question was not Germany or Japan, but the Soviet Union. In this struggle, too, the US government was determined to ensure that the Middle East's resources and strategic positions remained accessible to uh, the United States and its allies, a position Washington maintains to this day. The region's vast oil reserves were, of course, the principal cause of this perception. The United States was not itself uh, dependent on Middle Eastern oil. Most of the oil Americans consumed uh, immediately after the end of World War II uh, came from the Western Hemisphere. But Western Europe, uh, which the United States was trying to revive economically, got about 75% of its oil from the Middle East. Japan, another nation the United States was trying to uh, rebuild, was also overwhelmingly dependent on Middle Eastern oil. The United States also saw the Middle East as possessing great geostrategic value. Because the Middle East was adjacent to the Soviet Union, its territory uh, could be used as a staging area for land and air attacks against the Soviet Union in the event the Cold War turned hot. Uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles, or ICBMs, had not yet been invented, and US war plans relied heavily on the ability to conduct short and medium range bombing raids against enemy territory. To keep the Middle East in friendly hands, the United States began taking actions that would soon place it at odds with the growing force of Arab nationalism. Washington formed a permanent alliance with Britain and France, uh, which uh, of course had long been imperial powers in the region. It began providing diplomatic and material support to authoritarian leaders in the area who oppressed their own people and hoarded their nation's wealth but were supportive of Washington's uh, agendas. Uh, and it began cooperating closely with American oil companies in extracting and marketing Middle Eastern oil. Uh, these actions made the United States increasingly vulnerable to the Arab nationalist charge that it was seeking to exploit and dominate the region. Uh, America's political position in the Arab world was further compromised by the important role President Harry Truman played in the creation of the State of Israel. Exactly why Truman supported Israel's creation, and whether the driving force was uh, humanitarianism, domestic politics, or a strategic calculation, uh, is a contentious historical issue that need not concern us here. Uh, what is undeniable is that the establishment of the State of Israel uh, on the ruins of an existing Palestinian society deeply alienated Arab opinion from the United States uh, and gave further impetus to the growing Arab nationalist movement. In the space of just a few years then, much of the goodwill the United States had earned in the Arab world changed to bitter resentment. Arab nationalists could now charge that the United States was siding with the worst enemies of the Arab people, Zionism, European imperialism, and corrupt and authoritarian regimes in the Arab world. This critique became especially potent 
following the emergence of Gamal Abdel Nasser, who served uh, as uh, the leader of Egypt in the 1950s and 1960s. Nasser promoted a form of Arab nationalism that was extremely appealing to people throughout the Arab world. Uh, he portrayed the Arabs as a single people, having a common destiny as well as a common set of foes. Uh, he argued that the Arabs needed to cooperate with each other, to confront the threat posed by Israel, and to eliminate the last vestiges of European imperialism in the Arab world. He argued that the Arabs, uh, that Arab countries should adopt secular and republican forms of government, rather than Islamic or monarchical ones. Nasser also insisted that the Arab states should be governed in a manner that promoted social justice, breaking up large concentrations of wealth, uh, redistributing the wealth on an equitable basis, nationalizing industries and natural resources currently controlled by foreigners or private citizens. Finally, and this is what really upset the United States, Nasser insisted that the Arab states should follow a policy of non-alignment in the Cold War, that uh, Arab countries would be better off if they did not ally themselves with either the United States or the Soviet Union, uh, but rather position themselves to receive aid and uh, uh, military and economic aid from both Cold War blocs. Uh, Nasser's vision, as I said, was extremely popular throughout the Arab world, especially in the mid to late 1950s. And even though most Arab governments were hostile to Nasser, uh, they were often obliged to pay lip service to his views in order to avoid antagonizing their own people. Uh, by the 1950s, then, there was a serious conflict between Washington's vision for the Middle East and that uh, promoted by the dominant currents of Arab public opinion. The United States wanted to keep the resources and strategic positions of the region accessible to the West and to deny them to the Soviet, U Soviet Union. Nasserist Arab nationalists wanted to develop their resources and institutions free from Western domination. Even so, the U.S. government and the Nasserist movement treated each other with a measure of restraint and mutual deference that seems almost quaint by the standards of today. In the 1950s, U.S. policymakers recognized that the Nasserist movement had a certain amount of leverage, and they did try to avoid antagonizing Arab sensibilities. The Nasserist leverage grew out of two circumstances. First, the fact that the region did have enormous oil reserves, and second, the fact that the Soviet Union was alive and well and mounting a vigorous effort to woo non-aligned nations. Uh, American leaders always had to worry that if they moved too far in what was perceived as an anti-Arab direction, then the governments of the Arab world might be taken over by Nasserist forces, and once in power, Nasserists might retaliate against the United States by embargoing oil shipments to the West or by moving closer to the Soviet bloc. In the 1950s, this fear was a serious constraint on U.S. policy toward the Middle East. Uh, even though the administration of Dwight D. Eisenhower uh, worked to undermine Nasser behind the scenes, it was careful to treat him with deference in public. The Eisenhower administration also kept Israel at arm's length, refusing to become a major arms supplier of the Jewish state. 
in early 1956, for example, a group of congressional leaders met with John Foster Dulles, Eisenhower's Secretary of State, and asked him why the administration was refusing to sell major arms to Israel. Dulles replied that doing so, quote, would alienate the Arabs and result in a cutting off of Arabian oil. This, in turn, would greatly weaken Europe economically and bring NATO to a standstill. All the gains of the Marshall Plan would be canceled, and Europe would be forced to turn to the Soviet Union for economic survival and for its oil imports. Thus, we would save Israel, but lose Europe, unquote. It's hard to imagine an American Secretary of State saying something like that today. Uh, later that same year, 1956, uh, when Britain, France, and Israel launched uh, a military assault on Egypt to uh, reverse Nasser's nationalization of the Suez Canal Company, Eisenhower publicly opposed the attack and used all the diplomatic and economic means at his, at his disposal to force the three nations to abandon their venture. Eisenhower took this action not out of any sympathy for Nasser, but because he feared that the attack on Egypt, if allowed to succeed, would inflame the entire Arab world against the West and allow the Soviets to increase their influence in the Middle East. Eisenhower's attitude uh, on questions like this was widely appreciated in the Arab world. Although Arab nationalists criticized the United States for being soft on Zionism and imperialism, they did see Washington as occupying an independent position from that of Israel or the Western allies, and as being more sympathetic to Arab aspirations. Arab leaders acted as if they actually expected the United States to be even-handed on the Arab-Israeli dispute, and they were not always disappointed. Starting in the 1960s, however, this attitude of mutual deference began to erode, leading ultimately to the world in which we find ourselves today. What happened, in essence, was that Arab nationalism lost its perceived strategic leverage against the United States, prompting Washington to shed its prior deference to Arab sensibilities. American high-handedness sparked a series of violent actions from the fringes of Arab politics, which, of course, provoked the United States to still more brazen acts of high-handedness, a, a vicious circle in which we are locked today. Uh, the Nasserist movement reached its peak in the late 1950s. Uh, in the 1960s, Nasser's influence markedly declined. Partly this was due to his constant feuding with other Arab leaders, which sapped his energy and made him look petty. Uh, another major factor was the Six-Day War of 1967, in which Egypt and several other Arab states suffered a humiliating defeat, and in which, of course, uh, Israel came into occupation of uh, Arab lands, a problem we're dealing with today. At the time of his death in 1970, Nasser was still a beloved and imposing figure in the Arab world, but very little remained of his stirring vision of uniting the Arab world in a powerful international bloc. As Nasser's influence waned, the U.S. government drew closer to Israel. In the mid-1960s, it had begun selling Israel offensive weapon systems, and in the early 1970s, uh, President Richard Nixon embraced Israel as a strategic ally of the United States in the struggle against Soviet and radical uh, influence in the Arab world. 
Now, the Arab-Israeli War of 1973 briefly seemed to reverse the trend of Arab strategic decline. Not only did Egypt and Syria make a surprisingly strong showing, but the war was accompanied by uh, an Arab embargo on oil shipments to the United States, uh, which exacerbated existing weaknesses in the uh, Western and indeed global economy. Um, impressed by these developments, uh, some sectors of the American elite, especially oil company executives and State Department Arabists, lobbied for a return to a more even-handed U.S. policy on the Arab-Israeli dispute, uh, while Israel's supporters charged that Washington was already appeasing the increasingly powerful Arabs. So for a moment, it did appear as if this trend I described was being reversed. In hindsight, though, it is clear that the events of the mid-1970s did little to reverse the Arab state's collective uh, strategic decline, and in some respects, those events uh, compounded the decline. Uh, the 1973 war gave way to a US-sponsored peace process that had the effect of reducing Soviet influence in the Middle East, uh, and thus uh, denying political leverage to would-be challengers of American hegemony, since those who were inclined to challenge American hegemony previously could rely, or at least hope for, Soviet support. As the Soviets become less central to Middle Eastern politics, that hope becomes less um, uh, available. Uh, the US-sponsored uh, peace process, which culminated in the Camp David Agreement of 1978, subtracted Egyptian power from the Arab-Israeli equation, permitting Israel greater freedom of action elsewhere. One wonders if the Israelis would have invaded Lebanon in 1982 had Egyptian intervention uh, been a realistic prospect. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the oil shocks of the 1970s stimulated Western societies to employ conservation me uh, measures or to seek out non-Middle Eastern sources of oil, uh, thus reducing the global demand for Middle Eastern oil. Uh, and this development um, had the effect of uh, drastically reducing the likelihood of another uh, Arab oil embargo. So long before the disintegration of the Soviet bloc or uh, the American victory in the first Gulf War of 1991, prospects for a concerted, collective Arab challenge to U.S. hegemony had all but vanished from the political horizon. Uh, meanwhile, uh, anti-American violence in the Arab world, or from the Arab world, was on the rise. Uh, in the decades following Nasser's death, the mantle of Arab opposition was increasingly taken up by other Arab actors, whether rogue states like Libya and Iraq, or militant organizations like uh, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, uh, Hezbollah, and eventually Al-Qaeda, uh, movements that were much more willing to take violent action against American targets. But these movements and regimes also had far less regional appeal. None of them could hope to capture the imagination of uh, Arabs everywhere and thus force the hand of Arab governments as Nasser had done in his heyday. So what I'm describing, in other words, is a process whereby previously there had always been at least the expectation that the Arab states could uh, mount pressure against the United States in a collective and somewhat restrained way, not resorting to outright violence, but using coercive means like 
threatening an oil embargo or strategic threats like threatening to um, uh, align with the Soviet Union. And that vision was uh, what many Arabs hoped would, uh, would uh, gain for them a certain amount of leverage. As, as that vision recedes, it creates a vacuum, and into that vacuum uh, go uh, lone operators and, and uh, weaker extremists who um, engage in violent action against the United States and its targets uh, and, its, uh, and its allies. And the argument I'm making is that even though that action is much more violent and horrific, it's also really a sign of weakness. So as the 20th century drew to a close, the United States faced increasingly audacious challenges to its position in the Arab world, but far fewer inhibitions about striking back with naked power. Harsher measures against Arab offenders were, from Washington's standpoint, both necessary and possible. Over the last two decades, the United States has asserted itself in the Arab world in ways that would have been inconceivable in earlier decades, launching military attacks against targets in Libya, Lebanon, Iraq, and Sudan, using the veto in the UN Security Council to shield Israel from criticism for its continu continuing occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, uh, ensuring the perpetuation of crippling economic sanctions against Iraq, and later, of course, intervening militarily to effect regime change in that country. Uh, whatever one thinks of these actions, they hardly demonstrate a solicitous regard for the broad currents of Arab public opinion. Uh, <clears throat> to be sure, such actions are partly explained by the increasingly brazen manner in which isolated Arab actors have confronted the United States and its allies. But they also reflect the lack of meaningful constraints on American behavior. When in April 2002, Saudi officials hinted that they might use the oil weapon again to coerce a more favorable US policy on Palestine, the threat was dismissed as laughably implausible and quickly forgotten uh, by the Saudis themselves. Now, as I've tried to emphasize in this talk, the deterioration in relations between the United States and the Arab world is a relatively recent phenomenon and one that has grown out of clashing political visions for the Middle East. Now, this itself can be seen as an encouraging uh, circumstance since it suggests that uh, there was nothing inevitable or inherent about that antagonism. Uh, I should also stress that, uh, as I see it, the conflict has relatively little to do with cultural differences or clashing values. Of course, there are cultural differences. Of course, there are divergent value systems. Yet the bitterest conflicts between Arabs and Americans, the ones that have led to violent conflict, have actually taken place within a shared moral framework. As I indicated at the beginning, uh, polls recently taken in the Arab world have indeed revealed a high level of antagonism toward the United States. Typically, however, such antagonism is focused not on the values of American society, but on the policies of the US government, which are often seen as violating the very values they profess to uphold, like human rights, uh, democracy, national self-determination, uh, and concern for the interests of poor and weak peoples. In survey after survey, Arabs uh, will point to US support for Israel, 
not just uh, support for Israel's existence and security, but the financial underwriting of its ongoing occupation of Arab lands. Uh, they'll point to Washington's obsessive concern uh, up until uh, 2003 with Iraq's apparent desire to acquire weapons of mass destruction and total silence over the well-known fact that Israel already had a nuclear weapons capability. Uh, and they'll point to the U.S. government's long-standing support for authoritarian regimes uh, in the region. Uh, these are the critiques that ordinary Arabs um, um, uh, site uh, as seen in uh, recent surveys conducted by Western, Western polling agencies. Yet even if we focus on the views of uh, Islamists in particular, those most likely to think in terms of a, a clash of civilizations, uh, we find that, these, that their critiques of U.S. policy typically employ moral categories perfectly intelligible to the Western mind. This is you know, the critiques of Islamists. Those critiques would be uh, anger over what they see as American military aggression, outrage over the loss of civilian life, uh, indignation over the defamation of Islam in the United States, and rejection of what they see as a double standard uh, in the way the U.S. government reacts to Israeli misbehavior versus that of other Middle Eastern uh, countries. Um, uh, I'm not saying that these critiques uh, of the U.S. government are necessarily accurate or fair. In fact, in many cases, they are exaggerated, uh, in some cases, untrue. Uh, what I am saying is that these critiques have much more to do with American behavior than with the values supposedly underlying that behavior. Even the critiques voiced by Osama bin Laden seem to confirm this point. Now, to be sure, in his heart of hearts, bin Laden really does seem to believe in the clash of civilizations. What most outraged him about Washington's behavior was the stationing of U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia in 1990, uh, profaning the sacred soil of Islam. That's what launched him on his uh, anti-American jihad in the first place. So he does seem to believe in the clash of civilizations. But if we look at the rhetoric that bin Laden employed in the 1990s, uh, to gain support within the wider universe of Arab and Muslim opinion, we find that he relied heavily on standard political critiques. Um, you know, that America was supporting Israel's occupation of Arab land, that it was starving the Iraqi people, you know, through the economic sanctions, that it was propping up corrupt and authoritarian regimes throughout the region, and so forth. So while bin Laden himself may have had a clash of civilizations agenda, he realized that the best way to sell that agenda was to package it in standard uh, political rhetoric. So if there's any hope for the future of U.S.-Arab relations, it lies paradoxically in the very nature of the two people's mutual antagonism. Americans and Arabs are indeed divided by substantial cultural differences, and some of their conflicts arise from that fact. Yet the bitterest U.S.-Arab disputes over life and death, peace and war, freedom and coercion, occur within a common moral framework as each party condemns the other for sins recognized on both sides. It is tragic, of course, that Americans and Arabs apply their shared values so selectively and use them as weapons against one another, but the shared values endure, and with them a faint hope that these two peoples uh, might someday achieve a mutually beneficial and respectful political friendship. Thank you very much.
Okay, first of all, I'd like to start by thanking Salim for his very um, fluid and contextual uh, historical narrative and outline of U.S.-Arab relations. And I'd like to offer um, a few observations and comments of my own. I would like to clarify, in the introduction, I believe um, it was said that I'm not only an alum of the Chicago, Chicago Tribune and Jerusalem Post, and that's right, but that I've also worked at the Washington Post and the Cape Times, which is not correct. I've had some of my work published in those publications, but have not worked there. Okay, back on track. Um, I'd like to pick up on some of the uh, threads um, that you used to weave your presentation together. Um, you talked about the Huntingtonian theme of class of, clash of civilizations and the question that's arisen so many times um, since September 11th of why do they hate us? And uh, to paraphrase um, in terms of how um, uh, how uh, how Arabs tend to view the United States, I believe you said um, um, we are seen not for what we do, but for who we are. And I think these themes are very very relevant. And I'd like to make some observations about how they carry over and have carried over to our mainstream media in the last few years, especially since September 11th. And in fact, how since September 11th, some of these themes um, uh, have been, have come to us with the media as a very um, conduit for it. I think one of the basic questions we have to ask when talking about the mainstream media is how do they report these very political and historical contexts or do they at all, that provide the basis for these sentiments of Arabs toward the United States or sentiments toward the United States that are emanating currently from the Arab and Muslim worlds. Um, I think it's very much a, a question of framing of issues. How do we see ourselves? How do they see us? Do the twain ever meet? Um, four examples come to mind, two um, you know, in the not so recent past and two that are much more current. Um, at, in 1978, 79, in the Islamic, during the Islamic Revolution in Iran, um, the news coverage in this country was centered, of course, on the taking of the American hostages. Um, and we saw ourselves as victims of this hostage taking and sort of the target of rage of mobs in the streets of Tehran. Of course, here we're talking outside the Arab context, but within the Muslim world context. Um, the question which Edward Said raised in his work covering Islam was how much of that media coverage made reference to our historical political engagement with Iran from the 50s on when we backed the overthrow of a democratic uh, uh, government to reinstall the Shah. Um, in Afghanistan, since September 11th, we see ourselves as fighting the war on terror, which of course we are. We also have seen ourselves through the American media in the role of liberators of Afghani society from the Taliban, especially Afghani women. But in that coverage, how much political and historical contextualization has there been about the U.S. role in that country during the 1980s of backing the Mujahideen along with the Saudis, along with the Pakistanis, 
in um, their campaign to oust the Soviets and end the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. Um, currently in Iraq, we're in the position um, of occupier and also liberator and potential bringer of democracy. Um, how much contextualization has there been of the discussion of the persona and the regime and the brutality of Saddam Hussein in terms of American foreign policy, how he was our ally um, during the war, the eight-year war he fought with the Iranians in the 80s, um, and how that played out since. In the Israeli-Palestinian milieu, which is not new, it's ongoing with unfortunately very little change except for the worse in recent years. We see ourselves in the media as in the role of mediator and honest broker. But the question is, and, and you laugh, right? Um, what, what, we understand what the take is in the Arab and Muslim world about our role um, in that conflict. But how much is that really explored on a factual, historical, political basis? Um, I want to put in a very important qualifier here, and that is if this sounds like I'm advocating the blame America first, last, and always school of journalism, that's certainly not my intent. Okay. And one other qualifier is that I don't want to uh, give, the, give the impression that I think that all mainstream American media reporting on these topics is completely without nuance or without context. Um, you can find it there if you look hard enough and you will see it from time to time in parenthetical references and in sort of slogans and quotes of dissent um, that are allowed on the part of men and women in the Arab street and Arab intellectuals. But I think what's consistently missing from the coverage, and I think this is consistent with your commentary, Salim, is there does not seem to be, in fact I don't think there is, a systematic and thoroughgoing analysis of how our foreign policy, how our politics in the Arab and Muslim worlds, how it unfolds, um, and what happens when we come to times of crisis. So we see ourselves as, a, as being apart culturally from these societies. We see ourselves in some cases as being bringers of freedom and is more uh, often touted in the last 10 years bringers of potentially open markets. Uh, we see ourselves as, from time to time, as targets of violence, but there's very little discussion of what are the resources that we go there and our allies go there or are there to extract oil, land, water. Uh, what do we go there to them to take and how do they come back to us in response. Very often, and these are political questions, the linkages aren't made and the dots are not connected. Um, I want to just cite two examples of pieces I've seen recently, uh, one in the New York Times and one in the Chicago Tribune, which I think are great exceptions to this kind of characterization of the coverage. Um, you may have seen in the New York Times Magazine, uh, I believe it was on February 1st, just last month, um, there was a cover story and the headline inside was uh, the Shiite surge. And the question was, what do the Shiites in Iraq really want? I think this is a really good piece of journalism because it did several things. 
Number one, it gave us historical con context of this community in Iraq from the seventh century on um, through its treatment of the, uh, uh, at the hands of Sunni regimes, um, the Ottomans, uh, the Ba'ath regime, and also its sense of betrayal by the United States in its uprising against Saddam Hussein in 1991 when U.S. support, if not was promised, at least was indicated but was not forthcoming, which um, ended very badly for the Shiite community. So there was historical context in the piece. Um, the writer, and I think it was written by a fellow named David Reef, R-I-E-F-F, he let the voices of his subjects speak for themselves. He didn't do much parsing. That's a very good thing. The writer here, the journalist, served as a guide. It was a first-person piece. It was self-referential um, in some respect, respects, but he was our guide and not a preacher. There was a range of sources quoted from throughout the Shiite community, official, non-official, and there were American voices in there as well. Um, and it was a very strong piece. Um, another such piece could be seen locally. Um, I don't have the exact date of publication, but it was either the last week of February, the first week of March, on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, the Tribune's uh, religion writer, whose name is Geneve Abdu, A-B-D-O, I believe, um, wrote a piece on the local Shiite community here in the Chicago area. She did a good job of providing a historical explanation of the schism between Shiites and Sunnis. She talked about how um, these folks are in solidarity with their communities in Pakistan and Iraq and how they um, relate to uh, Shiite communities in those places um, being targets of recent violence. There was an explanation in the piece. In fact, I think the focus of the piece or the time peg of the piece was the Ashura holiday, which um, told us historically what that was all about. It mentioned um, the right of self-flagellation without focusing gratuitously on it as a lot of um, coverage of Ashura, especially um, observations of it in the Arab and uh, Muslim world tends to do. So these are a couple of good examples. The picture is not all black. Um, so we get back to the point you were making at the beginning. Um, if we are seen for what we are and not what we do, very often they, and pardon my setting this up in the we-they um, opposition, um, but Arabs are often um, are seen more for what they do and not enough for what they are, which, uh, which despite them being uh, having communities that are culturally and religiously and historically distinct with their own identities, there is a common moral um, framework, common shared values, which you indicate do endure. I would agree with that. And these include values of freedom and human rights and a dislike of double standards. Um, I'd like to offer the opinion that this kind of way of seeing these issues and presenting them in media, I do not personally believe should be relegated to the stuff of alternative media only, where people who already think one way or another are basically reading to reinforce what they already believe. 
I think this kind of reporting and analysis should be part not only of mainstream media discourse, it should appear in the news pages as well as on the editorial pages, of course in a balanced way. I'm not suggesting advocacy journalism, but I am suggesting some kind of um, analysis of the framework of these issues. Um, and, and now I come to the question that I would like to pose to get our discussion underway, and I will pose it to Salim. And it's, it's uh, sort of a tripartite question, and that is, first of all, how do you see the interaction, in a general sense, between scholars and journalists when it comes to a discussion of and working in these areas? Um, how, if you think it needs improvement, do you think it can be improved um, or expanded? And what effect might that eventually have in helping um, put forward better relations between the Arab world and the United States that you mentioned at the end of your talk? This is what I would be interested in hearing from you. It's a tall order, not an easy question, but just some of your ideas. And then I think uh, the idea is to open it up to thoughts and comments from uh, the audience. So thank you. I wonder if I can respond to your questions sitting down. Um, that's a great question. It's not one I've uh, given much thought to, so my answer will probably be unsatisfactory. Um, certainly, I think that both historians and um, and journalists, or academics and and journalists, have a lot to teach each other. Uh, one thing that journalists have uh, to teach academics is uh, writing for a larger audience, which I think is essential for at least for historians to do in order for their uh, profession to survive in the long term. Uh, I think it's um, it's really um, a problem. Uh, that so much historical writing is done for very narrow audiences. So I, um, I, mean, I do admire historians who are able to reach out to wider audiences. Obviously, there are some problems that uh, come from that when, when you have a very, uh, some popular approaches to history are, are less satisfying than others. But definitely, I think uh, all good history should aspire to reach a wide audience. Um, what, uh, what historians can uh, provide to, to journalists uh, is, you know, in an obvious sense, historical context. Um, uh, you mentioned the, the case of, uh, of the Iranian um, takeover of the U.S. Embassy in 1979. And that, I think, is a case where uh, some attention to history would have gone a long way toward uh, making sense of what to many Americans seemed to be a pretty um, inexplicable event. Uh, it really did seem to a lot of Americans that it came out of the blue, that they, just this group of, uh, of fanatical students out of uh, blind rage seized these hostages and then held on to them for, uh, for well over a year. Um, and, and, and you mentioned, Marta, the, the, um, the background of U.S. support for, um, uh, for the Shah and more particularly the U.S. support for the coup that overthrew um, Mohammad Mossadegh, the nationalist leader of Iran in 1953. But in fact, the, the activities of those uh, students in 1979 were directly related 
to the historical memory of 1953. Because what happened in 1953 was that uh, this coup began against Mossadegh. And at first, it seemed to have failed. And the Shah fled the country. Um, and then uh, the, the coup did succeed, and the, and the Shah came back in triumph. So, and if you look at what happened in 1979, just uh, prior to the, or not just prior, but uh, in the months preceding the, the seizure of the US Embassy, uh, you know, the revolution had begun. The Shah had fled the country. Um, but there were still, there was a good deal of suspicion that he would come back. And the students were convinced, and, and the US Embassy was actually expanding its operations in the period immediately after the revolution, because it was hoping to, um, to maintain, uh, to reestablish contact with the new Iranian government. Uh, you know, this was actually not a very um, nefarious thing for the US government to be doing, but it looked very suspicious from the standpoint of the Iranian students. So they were convinced that history was repeating itself. The Shah had fled the country, the embassy was expanding, the CIA, they were convinced, was using the embassy inside Tehran to prepare the way for the Shah's return. And their takeover of the embassy, at least initially, was directly aimed at preventing the CIA from using the US embassy for that purpose. Um, and this, I don't think, uh, came through very clearly in the mainstream media. So that's a case uh, where some uh, understanding of, uh, of history um, could inform journalism and make it better journalism. Um, how that, the, the third part of your question was um, how that would affect um, ultimately. ultimately. Well, Ideally. I, I, yeah, I guess, I mean, how, that, how it would do that is, is implicit, I suppose, in the way I've discussed this. It, it would ideally foster greater understanding of the perspectives of people in, uh, in, in the Middle East, not necessarily to excuse their actions. I think you know, even uh, with the background of the, uh, of the overthrow of, uh, of Mossadegh, the, you know, the seizure of the hostages in, in Iran in the late 70s was, uh, was deplorable. But, but to give it some sort of context to make it intelligible, and if you understand why people are doing things, even if you don't agree <laughs> with them, you have some uh, better understanding of perhaps reaching a resolution. So that's a, that's a good question. I'd like to give it even more thought.